0: Yes, thank you, Joe David, for not only leading us in our songs, but also that song that was my specific request for today. That's not a song that we normally sing as a whole congregation, but our I think our kids know that song, right? PT kids, you should know that song. I think you sing it in class. And uh, now we have the opportunity to sing it as a whole church. It sounded great. It was kind of, I was smiling up here. Uh, As everybody was singing so loud for It Is Well, that classic hymn. And then I watched you as you all did like a half squat, like you're ready to sit down. You know the routine. And then we threw this one on you. So that was fun. Uh, But it's fitting because we've been studying the 12 apostles since January 1st. That's when I started this sermon series. I'm actually calling it three M's, make mature and multiply, which is our mission statement as a church. And as we explore our own mission, we're looking at how Jesus went about making, maturing, and multiplying faithful followers of Christ. And so we're looking at these apostles one by one. Last week we looked at two, but most weeks we're just looking at one apostle at a time. So as you think about the 12 apostles, and as you think about your own social circles, like people that you know in your life, who is the least likely person that you would ever think would become a disciple of Jesus? Don't say any names out loud. I already heard somebody saying something. Don't say anybody's name out loud. Just think to yourself, who is the least likely person that would ever become a disciple? You might be thinking of maybe if uh, you already graduated and you're long gone out of school, maybe you're thinking of somebody that uh, you went to school with and you look back at their behavior and the way that they acted and you think there's no way that person would ever become a Christian. Or maybe somebody that you currently work with. Somebody that you currently go to school with. It could be somebody from your family. It could be somebody from a different religion and you think there's no way that person would ever put their faith in Christ. It could be a certain profession. You know certain people in certain professions and you think, I don't think they would ever follow Jesus. When I was a teenager, at the end of a church camp, I had another youth minister. He wasn't my youth minister. He was a youth minister of another group. But he came up to me at the end of camp, and he meant what he said as a compliment, but it sounded more like an insult, and he said, you know, I never thought of you as somebody who would take your faith very serious. He said, you always just goofed off, and he said, but you've really surprised me this year. And I was like, okay, is that like a compliment? What is that? I didn't know what he meant. What I heard was, I never saw anything in you, I didn't believe in you, and I was like, all right, I'll take that as inspiration, but... I think about Jesus, he believed in these guys, he believed in these ordinary men, these apostles. But also think about somebody who would surprise you, somebody who is the least likely person to become a follower of Christ, and that would be the apostle Matthew. And that is who we are looking at today. The the text on the screen is Matthew chapter nine. And I'm gonna start Matthew chapter nine and verse nine, and we're gonna just pause there for a few minutes. As Jesus was walking along, He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax collection station and He said to him, follow Me. And He got up and He followed Him. If you're reading Luke's version of this in Luke chapter 5, verse 28, Luke adds in there, He left everything and followed Him. If you're studying through the Gospels and you got to this point, you would probably think this comes out of nowhere. Especially if you're not familiar with the Gospels, like just out of nowhere, Jesus walks up to this tax collector and says, follow me. Those are two of my favorite words. I've mentioned that in many sermons. Follow me. What a great invitation, a life-changing invitation. Something that we need, if you've been a follower of Jesus, we need to hear in a fresh way, year after year, what does it mean to keep following Jesus? Jesus extends this invitation yet again. And in my opinion, uh, there's usually two layers to these follow me statements. I've mentioned this before, but I want to dive into it a little bit briefly here today. Is there's a layer of excitement. When Jesus says follow me, to me it's exciting. There's an adventure involved. It's like there's little details. You know, he just gets up, he leaves everything and he follows Jesus. That sounds like a fun adventure. When I was in my early 20s, I'm now, I guess you could say I'm in my late 30s, but when I was in my early 20s, uh, this was very appealing to me. Thinking about how Matthew just leaves everything, leaves his tax booth and goes and follows Jesus. Thinking about the fishermen who leave their boats behind, their nets behind, their father behind, and they just leave it all and they go follow Jesus. As a young, adventurous 20-year-old, I was like, that's what I want to do. Give, give everything up and go follow Christ. When I was 20 years old, I'd been a student at ACU for three years. ACU, they used to do this thing called spring break campaigns, where during spring break, instead of going to the beach or doing something fun, I guess you could go on a mission trip. And I had never been on one, but I just felt this nudging from God. So I, I, I went into the room where they had all the booths set up, and you could explore the different mission trip options. And they were going all over the U.S., and there was a few uh, spring break campaigns that were going to different countries. My friend Jordan was leading a trip to the Dominican Republic. I walked up to the booth, I talked to him for a moment, and I did something out of character. I grabbed the pen and I wrote my name down. I was like, I'm going. A few weeks later, I started raising money, and then I put down a pretty large deposit to go on this mission trip, and that's when I knew I'm all in. I'm going to do this. Woohoo! We're going on an adventure with Jesus. You know, as a 20-year-old, that was my thinking. I've been teaching the youth class on Wednesday nights this quarter, and I told them this example a few weeks ago, and I can't remember where I originally read this from, but there was a guy who did a lot of exploring... And he was mapping out new territories, an adventurous kind of guy, but every time he would come to a river or a body of water that seemed kind of dangerous, possibly too dangerous to cross, the temptation was to just turn around and go back. And he had this coat that he really needed and that he really loved. So the first thing that he would do when he came up to a river is he would take the coat off and he would throw it across the river. So that was his way of saying, I'm all in, Nothing's going to stop me now. I'm not going to let fear stop me. I'm going to go cross this river. For Matthew, leaving his tax booth and going and following Jesus, that's exciting. There's an adventure. It's like Matthew getting up to follow Christ is like throwing his coat across the river or signing his name up to go on that mission trip or putting down a deposit. So there's an excitement layer to following Jesus. And hopefully you've felt that before. Hopefully you feel it still today. But the second layer in following Christ is there's always a death. Jesus, you know, when when I'm in my early 20s, I'm thinking about this excitement, but Jesus invites us to die to ourselves and to die to something in our own lives. Diedrich Bonhoeffer very famously once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus invites us to come and die. For Matthew, the death involved leaving behind a lucrative career, a career that earned him a bad reputation. But when Matthew said yes to following Jesus, when he got up and he left that tax booth behind from everything that I have studied, Matthew was never going to get that job back. Rome, a dominant superpower, he worked for Rome, and Rome was not going to let him have a job back if he quits on Rome. So this is a big moment for Matthew. He knows that. A question that I asked you on January 1st of this year, and I asked it two years ago, and I'm going to keep asking it every year, is saying yes to Jesus means saying no to what? You fill in the blank. If you're saying yes to Jesus for the first time, that probably means that you need to die to something in your life. You need to say no to something. If you want to keep saying yes to Jesus, what do you need to keep saying no to? Or what do you need to say no to at this point in your life? For Matthew... Saying yes to Jesus meant saying no to being rich, to being wealthy. As a tax collector, he had to leave all of that behind. There's a death involved. So every time we follow Jesus or keep following Jesus, he's inviting us to die, to pick up our cross daily, as Luke chapter 9 says, and follow Christ. A few years ago, I was at a conference, and a longtime preacher was speaking. He had preached for over five decades. He was had already retired, he knew, in his, you know, he admitted this, he's kind of in his last stage of life doing a little bit of guest speaking. So this was one of his last speaking opportunities, and it got a little cryptic towards the end. And he said, someday, you probably won't see me again, you're going to get word that I've died. And he said, but what I hope that you can say is that he died a long time ago. And what he meant by that is, yes, I may have physically died and and you can put me in the grave. And he said, but truthfully, I died a long time ago. I died to myself and was made alive in Christ. And that has stuck with me. Because truly, that's what Jesus is calling us. It. It's not just all fun and adventure. Jesus is calling us to die. And, and that's not an easy thing to do. But Levi immediately responds to that call from Jesus. So who is Matthew? Who is Levi? Well, if you were looking at Mark chapter 2, you would see that he is Levi, son of Alphaeus. That's his Jewish name. We know his father. In other texts, he's called Matthew. It's used interchangeably. So that's who we know who he is. And out of all the 12 apostles that Jesus called, Matthew, Levi, son of Alphaeus, he is the most well-known, most notorious sinner. The 12 apostles were ordinary people, We've talked about that a few times, but Matthew, above all the other ones, he was most known for his sinfulness. He was a tax collector. Uh, you, you can study the Gospels, you've heard me say it. You, maybe you've read study Bibles, commentaries, Bible classes. Anytime you study through the Gospels, you're going to hear about how much tax collectors were hated and just simply put in a summary form, Tax collectors were viewed as traitors to the nation because they worked for the Roman government, they worked for that evil superpower, but also tax collectors could get rich off of other people because they would collect the taxes that they needed to for Rome, but then they could also mark up the price the taxes owed so that they could get rich off people. That's a real short summary. Tax collectors' horrible reputation. In the Gospels... Uh, Often, the category of sinful people that Jesus reached out to would be tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were so bad, they got their own category. I heard a preacher say one time, tax collectors were so bad that even sinners didn't want to be identified with them. In Matthew chapter 21 and verse 31, Matthew identifies them as tax collectors and prostitutes. Those are the categories in which tax collectors were put into. And that's who Matthew is. He is a tax collector. He was a religious outcast. He wouldn't have been allowed in the synagogue and the temple. That is his lot in life when he decided to become a tax collector. So out of all the apostles, remember I asked you from the beginning, who is the least likely person to ever become a disciple of Jesus? Matthew would be that guy. He is by far the most surprising disciple that Jesus picked, and especially Jesus specifically spent the night in prayer and chose 12 of these guys to be his representatives, to be his official apostles on earth. And Matthew, the tax collector, is one of the ones that he chose. So He calls Matthew, he invites him to follow him, but to also come and die to himself. And it's interesting that Jesus calls the tax collector. But what's even more interesting, perhaps, is what happens in verse 10 of Matthew 9. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with Jesus and his disciples. Uh, We're not reading a lot of verses today, but the verses we are reading communicate a lot. So Jesus, and according to Luke chapter 5, there's a banquet. He goes to Matthew the tax collector's house, and he shares a dinner. But we're told that the other dinner guests, other than Jesus and his disciples, We're a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. So if Matthew is trying to turn over a new leaf in life and he's going to follow Jesus, he's left his job behind, and he's going to throw a banquet for Jesus, why in the world would he invite this crew? Why would he invite these people? Anybody know? Because that's all he knew. He didn't know anybody else. He was an outcast. These were, this was his social circle. And the beautiful thing is, he gets to introduce a bunch of other tax collectors and sinners to Jesus. They come over, they have dinner, probably the first time that any of these types of people, these sinners, these tax collectors, have ever sat down to have dinner with a rabbi. I don't know that for sure. I'm assuming based on what we know historically and what we know from the context These people have never had dinner with a rabbi. In the first century, who you ate with, who you share the table with, who you share table fellowship with was really important because it shows that you identify with those people, you associate with them. So religious leaders, they would never eat with sinners and tax collectors, but Jesus would. So Jesus was constantly crossing these boundaries, which is eventually what got him killed. It's who he shared the table with. And I wonder that evening at Matthew's house what the conversation would have been like. Now, I'm not Jesus and I'm not a rabbi, but as a preacher, I have been in several uh, social settings, whether it's some form, kind of a banquet, uh, at a wedding where I'm meeting a bunch of strangers, whatever it may be. And I sit down to talk to people and they don't know my background. I don't volunteer that I'm a preacher right away. Because if I do that, sometimes the conversation changes. And that could be a number of ways. If they find out I'm Church of Christ, they want to jump on that a little bit, and they want to argue with me. Or they, if they find out I'm a preacher in general, and they've gone to church growing up, and they've had some relationship with their preacher, you know, they just start acting different. I'm like, hey, I'm a regular human. You can still talk normal around me. But the conversation changes. The demeanor changes a little bit. So I wonder if Jesus being this rabbi, sitting at dinner with tax collectors and sinners, every time they said something that we would consider inappropriate, church inappropriate, I wonder how many times they looked over at Jesus and said, sorry, rabbi, I shouldn't have said that around you. Like, I'm curious about how this conversation went. And while Jesus is having this conversation, having this dinner with these Sinful people, Matthew and all his sinful friends, were told that the Pharisee, when, they, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So well, they're upset. You read through the Gospels, you'll see that over and over. Religious leaders were constantly upset with Jesus because of the people that he was reaching, because of the people that he would eat with. This old saying, I think, is true about Christ. He was constantly comforting the disturbed and disturbing the comfortable. Have you heard me say that before? You've heard that before somewhere? So it's not that Jesus just would say to tax collectors and sinners, hey, I'm okay, you're okay, you keep doing your life, keep sinning, whatever. He called them out of that life, but at the same time they felt comfortable around Jesus. They felt like they could be around him. He gave them hope while he also was offering them life change. So he comforted those who were disturbed, but the religious leaders like the Pharisees, he was constantly disrupting their peace. He was disturbing them. And this is a great example of that. They're outside complaining. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I wonder how that made Matthew feel. Imagine being called to follow Christ And you're celebrating that. And then you've got some religious leaders outside complaining, insulting you, calling you a sinner, uh, pointing out your reputation and the baggage that comes with it. But Matthew did not let that stop him from following Jesus. I admire that about Matthew. We don't know a ton about Matthew. But even though he caught a lot of heat for his reputation, it did not stop him from following Jesus. In verse 12 and 13, Jesus responds... It says, when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Uh, most of the translations I'm reading from a NRSV, most translations, Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. Many years ago, when I was working as a, a kind of a missionary specialist, a missionary internship, Uh, We were doing some Let's Start Talking. Anybody in here ever participated in Let's Start Talking? I know some of you. Okay, see a few around the room. You've gone to different countries, and maybe you've gone for a few weeks, maybe you've gone for a month, and you get paired up with people where English is not their first language, but they know a little English, so they're working on their conversational English and you help work with them day after day, week after week, to develop that conversational English, the brilliant thing is you get to use the Gospel of Luke as your curriculum. So it's a way to teach people Jesus, but you're offering them something that they need. So I was doing Let's Start Talking every Tuesday morning with some teachers at a local international school, and one of the men that I studied with uh, was a Muslim man. And, you know, he he was fine using the Bible as a curriculum because he wanted to work on his English. And I'll never forget the day that we got to this text from Luke chapter 5, which is the equivalent of Matthew 9. And he paused on that verse where Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. He read it and he paused and he looked at it and he kind of pointed at it and he sighed. And at first I was wondering, maybe he's struggling with one of these English words. And then he looked up at me and he said, you know, Jesus was a really good teacher. I was like, yes, he was. And we kept reading, and then I ended up not seeing him anymore a few weeks after that. But I received word a few years later that he had become a Christian. He put his faith in Christ. He was drawn in by Jesus. And in my opinion, he's kind of like Matthew. He was the most unlikely person to ever become a follower of Christ maybe sometimes we just need to be like the Apostle Andrew. We talked about him last month. His reputation was he introduced people to Jesus. Maybe we just need to do a better job of introducing people to Jesus and representing Jesus and let Jesus do the rest of the work. So Matthew, the least likely candidate, and Jesus is saying it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And then in verse 13 he quotes Hosea Chapter 6 and verse 6 go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus is saying, There you go. There's my mission. Matthew is exactly the type of person that I am reaching out for. You see, back then the Pharisees believed that they are so holy and they were striving for holiness that they can't be around somebody as unholy as Matthew. It's almost like his sickness would get on them and infect them. So they stayed away from him. But Jesus had this opposite view. Jesus was so healthy, he thought if he could be around a sick person like Matthew, that he would have the opposite effect. He would actually help Matthew become healthier himself. And that's what he does. And what else do we know about Matthew. Okay, we have this great story. We just spent 15, 20 minutes on only like four or five verses. So what else do we know about Matthew? Very little. His name appears again in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 10, in the list of the 12 apostles. And I've been trying to read these every few weeks to keep you familiar with it. I'm not going to sing it, but here's what we were just singing from the song, He Called Them. Matthew 2 through four. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, Rock, and his brother Andrew, the one who introduces people to Jesus. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, the sons of thunder. John becomes the apostle of love. Philip and Bartholomew, who we know not a whole lot about, but we studied them last week. These guys that are introducing people to Jesus one at a time and learning to trust Jesus. Thomas, who we'll talk about next week. And Matthew the tax collector, James son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Okay, that's about all we know about Matthew. He's listed again here in the list of the twelve apostles. From church history, from early on, second century and beyond, Matthew was given credit as the author of the Book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book in our New Testament. And no one really disputed it. They lived closer to the time that Matthew would have written it. They gave Matthew credit. So we assume Matthew is the author of the first gospel, even though he doesn't identify himself as that. Even Eusebius, the church historian, refers to Matthew as the author of this book. So what else we know about Matthew is really what we can glean from the gospel that he wrote. And in the gospel that he wrote, he only mentions himself twice. In Matthew 9, his calling and the banquet that he throws for Jesus, and then the list of the 12 in Matthew 10. And each time he mentions himself, he makes sure to refer to himself as Matthew the tax collector. Like a constant reminder, not because that's who he is, but because that's who he was and that's what Jesus called him out of. And without launching into a full study of the book of Matthew, which is a, a brilliant gospel in, in the way that Matthew sets it all up. Uh, and I won't get into all of that, but just the basic overview of the gospel of Matthew is it was written for those of a Jewish background. It is for all of us, but it specifically appealed to the Jews in the first century. Uh, If you read through Matthew, you see the word fulfill. You see Old Testament references and quotes all over the book of Matthew. Uh, He quotes from the Law of Moses. He quotes from the Psalms. He quotes from the Prophets. Because he is trying to show those of a Jewish background that Jesus really is the One. Jesus really is the Messiah. Now, what does that communicate about Matthew? Here's my opinion. He was a Social and religious outcasts until Jesus called him. So the group of people that wouldn't allow him into the synagogue or in the temple before Jesus called him, apparently he did not hold grudges against them. Because he so desperately wanted them to know Jesus that a a few decades after the death, burial, and resurrection, Matthew writes this gospel out in a way that shows them through Scripture who Jesus really is. He didn't hold grudges. He didn't think, you know what? They treated me awful, so I'm going to let them burn. No, he wanted them to know Christ. The two questions I've been asking about each apostle, especially as we think about making, maturing, and multiplying faithful followers of Christ, is what do we learn about being a disciple? One simple lesson I think we learned from Matthew about being a disciple is don't ever count anyone out. Matthew is the least likely person to have ever become a disciple and then write a book in the Bible. But Jesus didn't count him out. Jesus saw something in him. Jesus believed in him. Don't ever count anyone out. What do we learn about being a disciple maker? Well, for one, we know that Jesus doesn't exclude anyone from His friendship. And I hope that brings you comfort today. I hope it brings you comfort in inviting people to church because Jesus welcomes everyone even tax collectors and sinners. One of the early church fathers pointed out that out of all the 12 apostles, there's only two professions that we know about. Some were fishermen and one was a tax collector. And that's all we know about their jobs, their professions. But he pointed out that there was nothing more common than being a fisherman and nothing more despicable than being a tax collector. And these are the people that Jesus called. And I'm thankful for that. Don't ever count anyone out. That's the lesson about being a disciple maker as well. As I get ready to conclude, before you start packing up your stuff, I want to pray because as I studied this week, I've been thinking about Matthew and it's just made me really thankful that God's grace appeals to people like Matthew and even me. So let's thank God for that in prayer. Lord, we come before you today and I want to thank you for calling Matthew to be your disciple because it gives somebody like me hope. Lord, in all my sinfulness and flaws and weaknesses, I know you still believe in me and you still believe in all of us. So thank you for your mercy and your willingness to be associated with and not to be embarrassed to be with somebody like Matthew or somebody like me or all of us. Thank you by your saving grace that you don't leave us where we're at, but You're constantly transforming us. We thank You for that, Father. We praise Your name. And it's in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. This morning, if we can help you, if we can pray for you, if you want to put your faith in Christ in any way, come talk to me. Come talk to one of our elders. I want to invite you to stand. We'll continue to sing.